Reflections on Indigenous Peoples Day. Across the country, so many tribes faced outright annihilation, but we are resilient. We are thriving. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments challenging a California law that prohibits cruelty to factory farm animals. If the court upholds California, that will embolden both California and other states to take more animal rights protective measures. And on the other hand, if the court strikes it down, it will be an interference with that agenda. How officials are preparing for wildfires and what you should know. And hear about the new Hemingway in comics exhibit. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Since 2019, California has officially marked the second Monday of October as Indigenous Peoples Day. It replaces Columbus Day as mounting historical analysis of the former holiday's namesake has highlighted the tragic reality of colonization. Instead, many people hope that the renamed holiday will serve as a commemoration of the perseverance that indigenous people embody in the face of past and present injustice. Joining me to discuss the relatively new federal holiday is Jolie Proudfit, CSU San Marcos professor and the first indigenous woman appointed to California's commission on the status of women and girls. Professor Proudfit, welcome. Thank you for having me. So to give some background, can you talk about why Indigenous Peoples Day became a holiday and the significance of it replacing Columbus Day? Well, Indigenous Peoples Day was a holiday that was put forward by activists as an, a way in which to commemorate and honor the first peoples of the North American lands. And so Indigenous Peoples Day at its core really aims to celebrate the futures, the present, the past of the contributions, the resiliency of Indigenous people. And, you know, we while we acknowledge the legacy of colonialism, we don't want to stay there with that legacy. We want to talk really about our futures and a celebration of our culture and the rich heritage and the contributions that Indigenous people make, not only to these lands, but to the globe. And how do you think Indigenous Peoples Day helps correct the historical record? Well, it's an opportunity for people to take the time and to celebrate Indigenous people, to remember, 
to create relationships. So for the last several years, I have been using Indigenous Peoples Day as a way to educate through edutainment. And so there are a number of ways that we can use this day to provide teachers across the country with ways in which to work with their students in a number of ways in a celebratory way to really kind of highlight and celebrate the contributions of Indigenous peoples, moving away from a antagonistic view of a colonizer to a celebration of the rich diversity and complexity in the tapestry that is Indigenous America. And so um, I like to celebrate with my students by providing really wonderful opportunities of learning and, like I said, edutainment. And San Diego County is home to a large number of Indigenous tribes. What do you feel is the regional importance of marking this holiday in an area that is so rich and diverse with Indigenous culture? Well, you know, everyone is Indigenous to some place. And that's important to recognize. And so while we use the term Indigenous, Indigenous followed up by place is really important. So while we're all celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day, it's really important to celebrate Indigenous people and the place that we are currently at. So children at school today, they should be learning about and celebrating the Indigenous people of where their school is located or where their home is located. So it really provides an opportunity to learn about the rich history of California. California Indians, unfortunately, have been often overlook in the history books. We have often been, you know, mistreated, maligned, erased in many respects. And so it's a real opportunity to focus the 40 million people that currently reside in California to take a really great look at the 109 federally recognized tribes and the nearly 80 non-federally recognized tribes that exist here in California, but also to celebrate the Native American people that live here who come from elsewhere. So Indigenous Peoples Day really affords all of us the opportunity to celebrate Indigenous peoples of these lands, of our place-based learning, but all peoples around the world and their rich contributions. Everyone is Indigenous to some place, but really when we look at Indigenous Peoples Day, it really starts from the land that we're all currently calling home. And outside of the classroom, how should people observe the holiday? Well, I give a lot of my students and employees and at the California Culture and Sovereignty Center, I give them the afternoon off so that they can go and celebrate with their families if they want to participate by attending cultural and social events. We're all at school today, but we're taking part of um, for our campus and for our California Indian Culture and Sovereignty Center, we're participating in a national watch party on Indigenous Peoples Day for the premiere of our first ever California Indian show run series on Netflix called Spirit Rangers. It's a preschool series of Native American siblings. They're a family of park rangers, and they get into all kinds of wonderful, magical activities and adventures, and they work to preserve the lands, the waters, the places, and the critters that call the park home. But we like to use this opportunity to educate parents and teachers and others about how they can learn and celebrate the rich contributions of California Indians. And you mentioned this earlier, but a lot of the focus of Indigenous Peoples Day uh, is about correcting the historical record. But talk a bit more about why this holiday is so important in a present and future context as well. You know, it is important to understand the past so we know why things are the way they are now and we can understand our future. Colonization, especially here in places like California, have done a number on our people. California Indians almost didn't survive 
the waves of colonization. Currently, there are nearly 7 million Americans who identify as Native Americans in the United States. That's down from an enormous um, representation of the First Peoples. So what happened there is important to understand. It was, you know, for California, gold, greed, and genocide. Across the country, so many tribes faced outright annihilation. But we are resilient. We are thriving. We are working hard to preserve our language, our lands, our waters, returning land to our communities. I just learned that the Tongva peoples of the LA Basin have received some land back. So there's a real opportunity to, while we're while we're going to examine the past and the impacts of colonization, to really think about Native futures going forward. I've been speaking with Professor Jolie Proudfoot, Chair of American Indian Studies and Director of the California Indian Culture and Sovereignty Center at CSU San Marcos. Professor Proudfoot, thank you and happy Indigenous Peoples Day to you. Thank you and happy Indigenous Peoples Day. If you love California, say thank you to a California Indian person and go celebrate. Tomorrow, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments challenging a California law that prohibits cruelty to factory farm animals. The law forbids the sale of meat and egg products in the state when animals have been confined to cruel and extreme conditions. And that would include the so-called gestation crates used by most of the nation's pork producers to prevent pregnant pigs from moving until they give birth. Supporters of the California law say this case has the potential to unite conservative and liberal justices in supporting the humane treatment of animals. But others point to the business-friendly bent of the court and say it's not likely. Joining me is Professor Glenn Smith, who teaches constitutional law at the California Western School of Law. And Glenn, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, Californians voted on Prop 12, dealing with the humane treatment of farm animals back in 2018. Can you remind us what that said? Yes, it basically, uh, and by the way, it was supported by 63% of the voters, And it basically said that both in-state producers and out-of-state producers who sell pork in California can't confine breeding pigs in cages so that they can't lie down or move around easily. And then uh, a second part of it that's being especially challenged now is that each uh, breeding pig has to have at least 24 square feet, so six by four feet. Can you explain a little bit more about these gestation crates and what they're like? Well, I'm not an expert on you know pork production or animal um, safety, but but basically I've seen pictures and they look very much as you would imagine. The, each breeding sow is isolated in a particular cage, and uh, you know hundreds of them can be together but but separate, and uh, their ability to move around before. Prop 12 was passed was was at least from my uh, layman's perspective fairly limited. The Prop 12 law also prohibits the sale of things like eggs when chickens are not treated well on factory farms. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Although the the petitioner, the person bringing the lawsuit all throughout the levels of court and up to the Supreme Court, is a National Pork Producers Council. So the focus at the oral argument tomorrow, and in this case, is really going to be on the impact of the pork-related restrictions on the industry and on animal welfare and human health. 
What is the constitutional issue they claim is involved? Well, it's a somewhat obscure one. It doesn't rip off the tongue of everyone who's thinking about uh, free speech and whatever, but it's called the Dormant Commerce Clause. And this one, as we know, the, the commerce power is basically a grant of commerce regulation authority to Congress. That's what they use for Obamacare, for example. It's also been held by courts for decades to restrict the extent to which states in passing normal economic and social welfare legislation can have a negative effect on out-of-state industry. So there are several prongs of this doctrine, that, and two of them specifically are at issue in this court case. Can you explain the two, two different angles that are at issue in this court case? Sure. The, the more typical one is, is called the Pike balancing test, Pike being a case. And what it basically says is if the burdens on out-of-state industry are, quote, clearly excessive in light of the benefits. So if it's very burdensome, but doesn't get much in the way of benefits, it's unconstitutional. That, as you can imagine, Marine involves a lot of authority to courts to act like legislators and balance, you know, what are the pros and cons of this legislation? Uh, the one that's less um, typical and which, frankly, the pork producers are trying to get the court to stretch goes by the really snappy title of the extraterritoriality doctrine. So I couldn't even pronounce it, the extraterritoriality doctrine. And basically what that says is when the, uh, a regulation is so extreme that it amounts to controlling the prices charged by out-of-state producers, it's pretty clearly unconstitutional. And it's a, been a fairly limited doctrine, but the producers are trying to get it to be stretched here because the reality is, the vast majority of pork that's sold in California is not produced in our state, but out of state. And so they claim that this law has the equivalent of basically dictating the practices and prices out of state. But there are other California-specific laws like gasoline blends that only affect California and that the overall gas industry adapts to. Why, is, why would Prop 12 be different? Well, that's in fact what uh, California argues. California argues that various major sectors of the pork production industry and various you know, large uh, grocery chains that buy pork have already adapted to this. And that's just the, California says that's just the normal thing that any state regulation, including California's, adopted for good reasons. It has the effect of making industries have to change their practices, which raises prices and consumers deal with it. And, you know, life goes on. Um, what's different about this is some of those ones that you mentioned are under federal regulation. And the federal government, Congress, can give states the authority to, to regulate in ways that this doesn't involve. The federal law doesn't authorize this. California voters in California did this on their own pardon the pun, initiative. They went. They decided to do this on their own without the cover of federal law. And that's why these doctrines apply. It's somewhat more vulnerable. Even though the court's focus may not be on the humane treatment of animals, do you think this would impact the future of animal rights issues if this law is upheld? Yes, as you and I have often discussed, they're the, the sort of the legal doctrine questions, but they're all informed by the, you know, the social or economic uh, or even moral issue behind it. And I think that's right. I think if the court upholds California, that will embolden both California and other states to take more animal rights protective measures. 
And on the other hand, if the court strikes it down, it will be um, an interference with that agenda and it will make it it will make legislators pause and it will make animal rights activists have to scratch their heads and figure out how to make sure they avoid this problem. So animal rights is not technically on the docket, but it certainly is informing things in the background. And by the way, I also think that certain justices will make light of California's concern and just denigrate it to typical kind of new age thinking or whatever. And other members on the court will will resonate with the animal rights um, agenda here. And so it'll be interesting to see how that works out both at tomorrow's oral argument and in the ultimate decision. And when will we hear the results? Do we have to wait until like next June or do you think it'll come out earlier? (laughs) Yes, you and I are veterans of waiting to June for these big blockbuster controversial cases. But this one might well be decided in the next two or three months. Okay, I've been speaking with Professor Glenn Smith, who teaches constitutional law at the California Western School of Law. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard and that's music to my ears become a member today just go to kpbs.org click that blue give now button and donate what you can all right thanks You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. October is Fire Prevention Month, a critical time for fire danger and preparedness. KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado talked with Cal Fire about what they're facing in fire-prone areas of San Diego County and what you should know to stay safe. October is the start of the toughest season for fighting fires, with drought conditions, peak Santa Ana winds, and the curveball of climate change. It takes a tough job to a whole new level. The need for response when these fires are getting so explosive so quickly, we're ordering everything we can right off the bat and throwing the world at these fires to try and keep them small. That's Captain Thomas Schutz, the public information officer for Cal Fire San Diego County Fire Department. We know that the potential for them to explode and become these mega fires, these fires that are 100,000 plus acres, that's what we don't want. He says stopping a fire from getting that big is not just critical to saving lives and property. The size of the fire determines how quickly a community recovers. They're burning so hot that they're really destroying the environment. A lot of times they're essentially moonscaping these areas, taking all the nutrients out of the soil, and it's not good for the long-term survivability of these areas. And Cuyamaca is a perfect example of that. Um, the, the, The fire moved through that area in 2003, and really that area hasn't come back since. It's going to be probably another 100 years before we see the forest look like it did pre-2003. So what they do year-round is work with homeowners to mitigate fire danger and keep fires as small as possible. And that's not easy. 
they have to maintain about half of the county, or about 1.5 million acres. And a large portion of the East County is rural backcountry, prone to fire danger. We're out here in the community of Crest. This is one of the project areas that we had from a few years back. We did a community of Crest and Guatai and, and really focused on um, clearing right along the, these communities. You know, it had a big potential in this community to uh, have a fire potentially start in the community and make its way out, or to have a fire coming through and, and really impacting this community. And so our focus became to create this buffer going along the, the edge of this community to really try and stop any kind of fire um, working its way in. In order to keep fires under control, firefighters must know where their resources are at all times and stage them accordingly. And they have plenty, but Schutz says historically when there is critical fire weather, multiple fires break out in many areas and resources are stretched thin. Our neighbors to the north, which usually send resources down to us, aren't going to be able to do so. That's when it becomes really critical for folks to get out of harm's way as quickly as possible and to, to help us prepare for events like that so that they've done their part so that we can get in there and, and uh, go after these fires with the resources that we do have. Evacuations are daunting in some areas during normal conditions. We've seen from the studies that it would take 11 hours to evacuate 80% of Ramona. 11 hours is something that we're not going to have um, when the fire is blowing through there. But right now, when the moisture level is at critical lows, it's vital to heed warnings early and leave when the order is given. The brush and the grass are ready to burn. The grass out there is all cured. The brush is all dry and ready to burn. And so that's why this time of year is so, so critical and why it's so important for folks in, throughout San Diego County, but especially our folks living out in the backcountry, that they're prepared and, and really ready to evacuate at a moment's notice. Schutz warns now is no longer the time to use mechanized equipment late in the day because one spark will start a fire and says it's important during this month of preparedness to take the time to get your family and home ready. You can learn more at readyforwildfire.org. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. San Diego City planners want to rename and restructure the plan to pack more housing into certain regions of the city. But the change from transit priority area to sustainable development area could be more than just fiddling with terminology. Residents opposed to increasing density have complained about the transit priority plan, so planners propose the change to strike a new balance. But it turns out nobody is especially pleased with the proposed change, and it might be in violation of state law. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Thanks. How does the city designate transit priority areas, and what do they have to do with creating more housing? Transit priority areas are defined in state law. They're called TPAs for short, uh, and they are anything within a half-mile radius of a major public transit stop. That could be any rail stop or a bus stop with uh, multiple routes and a certain level of frequency when the buses come. And what they have to do with housing is these are areas where the city is meant to focus its growth. So rather than building more density, more housing in sprawling areas or far-flung areas that are inaccessible uh, for public transit, 
the development and our growth should be a, uh, more intense and there should be fewer restrictions on building in these transit priority areas. So the city has a handful of programs that are designed to accomplish that goal. Uh, one of them is called Complete Communities. It allows significantly more density and uh, height than would otherwise be allowed under zoning rules. Uh, in exchange for more affordable housing in those projects. And this applies to uh, areas zoned for apartments in transit priority areas exclusively. Um, there's also, for areas in single-family zoning, you can build unlimited accessory dwelling units, or granny flats, they're also called, uh, if roughly half of those uh, granny flats that you build in your backyard are restricted as affordable housing. Well, what do some people see as the drawback to measuring these areas out in half-mile radiuses? So the half mile is measured as the crow flies. So there are a small number of properties that fall within a half mile radius of a transit stop, but are actually much, much further from the nearest transit stop if you're trying to get there on foot. Uh, they might be separated by a canyon or a freeway or some kind of fencing even, uh, or just a street layout that doesn't have a whole lot of connectivity. And uh, I think a big reason why this is happening now is a lot of these projects that are using these incentives based on transit priority areas are starting to get built. And people are suddenly realizing, I am in a transit priority area that allows for uh, you know big changes in what I thought was the zoning for my neighborhood, and I'm not okay with that. So there has been a lot of discontent from uh, groups representing mostly um, homeowners who are opposed to this shift or this push for more density in their neighborhoods. And I think that was sort of why it, it has bubbled to the surface, in addition to these longstanding complaints about, does this issue or does this uh, uh, distance measured as the crow flies really makes sense. So how would the proposed sustainable development areas be different? Yeah, so, well, first they are called sustainable development areas because the city doesn't want to confuse them with the transit priority areas that are in state law and cannot be changed under state law for state programs. Um, but rather than uh, measure this half mile as the crow flies, the distance in a uh, sustainable development area would be uh, measured from a transit stop along designated walkways. So sidewalks, bridges, um, perhaps even hiking trails or uh, paths through public parks. Uh, and so that's meant to acknowledge that people don't fly to transit. They're they generally walk. Uh, they might bike also, or, or perhaps even drive. And Maureen, just to give you a sense of how complicated this new system would be, the distance measured along these pedestrian pathways would be one mile in certain parts of the city and 0.7 miles for other parts of the city. And that would just depend on how high the rate of driving is in that neighborhood. So this half mile radius, um, love it or hate it, it is a fairly simple system. And the new system that the city is trying to propose is perhaps a little bit more surgical in its approach, but generally much more complicated. Andrew, you sat in on a workshop last week where this proposal for sustainable development areas was discussed. How was it received? There's a group called Neighbors for a Better San Diego uh, that has been pushing on this issue quite a bit. Uh, they are one of those groups that is uh, essentially opposing density in these quieter single-family home neighborhoods. And uh, there were several representatives from that group at the meeting. A lot of them had pointed questions for city staff. And then after the workshop was over, they sent out an email to their uh, listserv calling this proposal a bait and switch. 
There were also several folks from the more pro-building camp at the workshop. Uh, They seem to be adopting a wait-and-see approach, so they definitely have concerns about how this change would impact housing in the city and the city's ability to build enough housing for our growing population. And it's important to note that these housing incentive programs have actually been hugely successful at accomplishing their goal. A lot of developers are using the Complete Communities Program and other um, incentive programs that are designated for transit priority areas uh, to build a lot more housing. So um, I think they're withholding criticism for now uh, until they can see a a clear comparison of the two systems side by side, but they are definitely concerned. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you. My pleasure, Maureen. This next story is an ode to the Japanese-American community that once farmed all over Southern California. Writer Caroline Hatano's grandfather farmed flowers on the Palos Verdes Peninsula for 70 years. This summer, the city of Palos Verdes terminated the lease, closing the last Japanese-American farm in the area. Her story first aired on the California Report magazine as part of a collaboration with Civil Eats, a daily news source for critical thought about the American food system. Here's Caroline Hatano. For most of my 20s, I fantasized about working on a farm. I'd wake up with the birds and spend most of my time outside, learning about things like soil, pests, and tractors. The plants themselves would teach the more conceptual subjects on tenacity and growth. This version of myself would be more attuned to nature and to herself, the kind of knowing that I imagined could only come from true solitude, away from technology and the white noise of everyday life. I didn't realize it then, but my daydreaming wasn't just a coping mechanism. It was largely a yearning for connection with my Japanese heritage and the side of my family I share it with. They'd been farming in California since immigrating, and growing up, our relationship had mostly boiled down to annual pleasantries. Aside from my grandma, my bachan, she always showed up at my horse shows and volleyball games with a bag of salty tengu beef jerky in hand. Last year, on the brink of turning 30, I finally hit pause on the College to Corporate America pipeline to work on a vegetable farm. At my 9-to-5 job, I'd been a senior editor at a small content agency. But on the farm, I was just another apprentice wearing Carhartt, plastering bandages on my cracked hands. Each week, we'd seed new plants in the greenhouse, transplant young ones out in the fields, and harvest as fast as we could. Every Wednesday, we packed boxes for the weekly CSA in an assembly line, usually with the Alabama Shake song, Hold On, setting the pace. Before I ever even touched a harvest knife, I knew my favorite crop would be sunflowers. I loved getting lost in the towering rows, tilting each sunny stalk down to check how many petals had popped, stumbling to the truck with as many as I could sling across each arm. With each harvest, I was reminded of my grandpa, my Jichan. Some 70 years ago, he'd sized up his newly leased plot of land, and decided to gamble on the very same flower. His farm had been in Rancho Palos Verdes, a coastal LA suburb straight off a tourism poster, with dramatic rolling hills and cliffs to match. When I talked to my dad, Dwight Hitano, about my Jichan, we agree that his passion for farming was always clear. I mean, Jichan was obviously very proud to be a farmer. I don't think that that was ever really like a question for me growing up. He loved it so much. Yeah, and... 
you know, Ji-chan, his whole being was, you, you don't brag, you don't talk about yourself, but you could tell he was proud of what he did and then the product he was putting out there. You know, the happiest place was when he was at, the, for him, when he was the happiest was always being out at the farm. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's what was his purpose in life, his reason for, for living. My Jichan died in 2015, well into his 80s and just a year after retiring. I had a kind of awakening when I realized I'd missed my opportunity to connect with him in a meaningful adult way. Not long after I wrapped up my apprenticeship, I learned that his farm, which had continued to operate, would soon be forced to close. Like many farmers in the U.S., he'd rented his land and the city was terminating his lease. For my family, it meant the end of an era. But his farm also happened to be the last Japanese-American founded farm on a peninsula that was once home to hundreds of them. And this past summer, it closed forever. Probably my first memories are working at the ranch with my dad and going out there on Saturdays, um, which was, you know, that was kind of our family time, family day. I grew up hearing stories about what the peninsula used to be like back when it was crowded with strawberry and garbanzo bean farms run by Japanese Americans. You know, as little kids, we, because the, the farms were so close, we just ride our bikes down there and um, run in there and start helping out. You know, we, we thought we were helping out. Or if they were out in the fields, we'd go and pick tomatoes or pick strawberries with the workers. Sometimes my dad and his siblings would go pigeon hunting as a low-tech method of pest control. Or they'd join another farm kid named Satoshi on the combine, a sort of tractor-like harvesting machine. Satoshi would drive the, the combines with the garbanzo beans, and so they'd cut the garbanzo beans and feed it into the combine, and it would throw shell them into the back. So we used to go there, and I'd go running after him, and he'd stop and let me climb up, and uh, we'd ride with him. On, and those were, that was usually on Saturdays and Sundays, you know, because it was the weekend. Now the area is home to a Trump golf course, a luxury resort, and neat rows of identical houses. All thanks to the Japanese-American community who'd been working the land since 1882, transforming it from desert into fertile farmland. Together, many of the farmers pioneered dry farming techniques that are still in use today, as California's climate only continues to get hotter and drier. Despite anti-Asian land laws that kept them from owning farmland until 1952, Japanese farmers managed to be incredibly successful up and down the West Coast. By the 1910s, they were already generating 16 million of the $25 million flower market business in LA, which is where my Jichan eventually ended up raising sunflowers in baby's breath. He was very prideful in, in the fact that his baby's breath, it was wider, the flowers were wider and bigger. And so you compare them to other growers' baby's breath and it just wasn't the same. And that's why you know, his was so much in demand. Of course, all that progress was interrupted in 1942 when 120,000 Japanese people on the West Coast were incarcerated in concentration camps. Most of them were American citizens. And it was white growers who benefited from the subsequent price spikes due to crop shortages. It's no coincidence that today, white landowners still control an estimated 98% of farmland in the U.S. In the subsequent years of incarceration, many Japanese Americans lost their land had equipment stolen, and were forced into agricultural work in the camps. After the war, the USDA estimates that Japanese farm ownership, including leases, dropped to less than a quarter of what it had been. 
My Jichan had been incarcerated in the Poston, Arizona camp as a teenager, eventually leaving his family to help fight the war against Japan. In the meantime, my great-grandparents relocated to the L.A. area after hearing about its Japanese farming community from friends at camp. It wasn't until the 50s that my Jichan leased his peninsula plot from the military. When Rancho Palos Verdes was incorporated some 20 years later in 1973, part of the agreement mandated that the land he was farming be converted to recreational use. Whether it was out of guilt, respect, or plain old bureaucratic disorganization, the city allowed my Jichan to renew his lease anyway until 2014. That was the year he retired and transferred the lease to Martin Martinez, who had started working with him at the farm as a teenage immigrant from Mexico. Allowing his legacy to live on through Martinez would have been especially meaningful, as he represents another oppressed community that forms the backbone of California agriculture. When my Jichan's lease expired this summer, with it went our community's only tangible tie to the land we nurtured and made viable. Land that provided Japanese Americans with livelihoods, camaraderie, and an anchor in times of great turbulence and terror. And although the city is pursuing a historical designation to try to preserve that history, it doesn't feel equitable in any sense. A plaque doesn't maintain a sense of place. And this story isn't singular, which naturally leads to a string of what-ifs. If Japanese Americans had never been sent to prison camps, if we didn't continue to face discriminatory laws after the war, if we hadn't suffered devastating economic setbacks, would my Jichan have been able to buy land? Would property ownership alone have dramatically changed California's agricultural landscape? Of course, leasing farmland is still common practice today. According to the USDA, more than half of cropland in the U.S. is rented. One of the biggest barriers to entry for new farmers is an inability to acquire land. And because many white families already own land in some form, farming remains a white industry. The hierarchy, with white landowners at the top and immigrant laborers at the bottom, stays intact by structural design. Before I started my apprenticeship, I wondered if one season would be enough to fulfill my farming fantasy. Now, a full year out, I often find myself drifting back to the easy routine of last summer, of spending all day with my hands in the dirt, playing Marco Polo in the sunflower fields, of driving home with the windows down, smelling like sweat and tomato plants. Farming offers an opportunity to feed people, but also to build collective knowledge, establish traditions, and honor shared history, and eventually, I hope, to challenge the status quo. One of the things I like most about farming is that you're always building on your own work. Over time, you create the kind of soil you want. Each season, you review last year's notes and make adjustments to improve yield. It's a practice that rewards patience. In some ways, turning soil over is almost like burying our dead. Cover crops and sunflower stalks become food for the next generation, which means that long after you've left land behind, there's always evidence you were there. So although my Jichan's farm might no longer physically exist, in every plant that blooms up and down the peninsula, there will be a small piece of him and the community he belonged to. And that's something no one can take away.
That was writer Caroline Hatano. Her essay about her grandfather's farm in Rancho Palos Verdes comes by way of the nonprofit news organization Civil Eats. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heidman. The Comic-Con Museum in Balboa Park recently opened Hemingway in Comics, It's an exhibit that explores what it means to be an icon and how that image can change over time. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Robert K. Elder, whose book inspired the exhibit. Robert, Comic-Con Museum is hosting a Hemingway in Comics exhibit right now. So give people an idea of what they can expect coming to this exhibit. I hope they'll be surprised. Hemingway is this international figure And he's appeared in over 120 comic books throughout the world. And it's everything from he shows up in a Superman comic in the 1970s. He shows up in an Italian Mickey Mouse cartoon circa the year 2000. He shows up in a Jazz Age Creeper series. So because he was a fascinating person who lived in really fascinating times, it makes him the perfect sort of historical avatar to sort of speak for these times or to sort of, you know, be a cameo. So uh, I hope people will be educated and again, a little surprised. And how did you get involved in kind of collecting all these different images? And what kind of research did you do to find them? I fell backwards into it, to be honest. So I had done uh, a previous book called Hidden Hemingway, which is about the archives here in Oak Park. I live in Oak Park, which is Hemingway's hometown. And I edited that book with my friends Mark Torino and Aaron Vetch. And I was doing a signing at Hemingway's Key West house in Florida. And in the kitchen, there's a little frame, and it's got Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and Donald Duck, and, and Scrooge McDuck. And it looks like there's a Disney-fied sort of Hemingway character, and all the word balloons were in German. And so I asked the docent there, like, what is this? And no one had any idea in the entire house. No one had, like, nobody knew where it came from. Nobody knew who put it up. So I spent, you know, not five years putting that together. But as I started sort of collecting all of these things and finding out where that was from, it was from a, um, a German comic book in the 1980s. It just sort of started to accrue, and I wrote pieces about it for the Comics Journal, and then the the, the readers of Comics Journal would say, oh, well, have you seen this? He's actually also in this uh, Japanese anime, you know, comic book. Have you seen that? Uh, You know, have you seen this? And it just sort of uh, snowballed in the most lovely way. And in looking at all these different representations of Hemingway, What did you learn or what did you feel kind of it says about who Hemingway was and kind of how we look at him and his legacy? Well, for me, it is sort of this weird sort of meta book. So it started as a book with Kent State University Press. And then I just collected all of this artwork because I did all of the research for it. So that is the basis for the show. And because I had already been sort of steeped in Hemingway history and biographies and and, and whatnot, 
What I was surprised to learn is the level of some of the scholarship. In Peter Milligan's story arc in Shade the Changing Man, you know, Hemingway shows up and it makes a reference to the fact that he was dressed as a little girl as a kid. And he, he was. He was twinned with his sister and his sister was also dressed as a little boy. And so it's the different scholarly takes and historical takes on Hemingway because some of them are reverent. Some of them love Hemingway. Some of them absolutely make fun of him. So I just love this sort of range of takes on Hemingway because the book ultimately is about what happens when you become larger than life, when your name becomes a brand, when your persona outshines your work and you lose control of your myth. So that's the most fun for me. So, Robert, does the exhibit tackle any of the complexities and controversies surrounding Hemingway? He's revered as a writer, and he's contributed an immense amount to literature, but he's also been accused of things like misogyny. And I'm just wondering if that comes into play in the exhibit in any way. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think they do a good job of that. Like, it's him as a whole person. He was from a different time. I always question the misogyny charge. In fact, a lot of scholars do. It's like, okay, well, point me to where you think that. The um, hyper-masculinity, absolutely. Like, that was a myth that he curated. But there are some unflattering things about him. He was, in his language in letters with friends, anti-Semitic. Just like, there's no denying that at all. And we shouldn't. We should make that part of the larger picture. There's also a, a piece to him which is strangely relevant, you know, strikingly relevant because he experimented with gender fluidity. All of his wives, uh, he sort of role swapped. Um, and with uh, Mary Hemingway, his, his fourth wife, you know, he called her his kitten brother. And he often referred to himself as Catherine, as the female part of the relationship. So in this time when we're talking about trans rights and trans identity, he is strangely relevant um, in those conversations. So my hope is that people would see him as a whole person with flaws and sometimes huge flaws. But I think some of the myth doesn't have lasting teeth. Like the, some of the misperceptions don't help understand him as a human being or as an artist. And do you have any particular favorite pieces that are in the show, either ones that were surprising to you or that you thought were just particularly unique? I mean, there are a couple. There's a story um, from this Italian sci-fi comic book called Nathan Never. And, and think of him as sort of like this detective Sam Spade, but he looks like Harrison Ford a little bit from Blade Runner. It's this story about the waters of Venice and they go missing and there are aliens. But in the middle of this, Nathan Never meets Hemingway and sort of talks about life. It's really, really interesting. I also love, again, just the, the weird stuff where he shows up in uh, either Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck cartoons. Like that is, is really amazing. And in fact, those comics had never been translated. And so my next book, which is out in March with Fanagraphics, is translating that. Uh, again, like it's the project that won't die. <laughs> And what is it about him or his writing that you particularly connected with? Some of it is just the interior humanity. Brian Azzarello wrote the foreword for our book, uh, and he talks about every character having this inner life. While sometimes the words are sparse, there is this inner life that you get from them. And also he tackled a whole bunch of issues, uh, especially in the 1920s, that would have been 
difficult to deal with. So not only war, but also issues of uh, gender identity and homosexuality and uh, Mussolini, you know, he takes a shot at Mussolini early in his career. So for me, it is the difficult topics. You know, there are, there are a couple stories about abortion. There are a couple stories about difficulties between men and women. And I think those particularly hold up because they represent a lived experience. And I think that transcends time. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about Hemingway in comics. Beth, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Robert K. Elder. The exhibit inspired by his book Hemingway in Comics will run through the end of the year at the Comic-Con Museum.